Hello? 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 Yes, this is MCO. Hello? This is MCO. Hello? Hello? This is another MCO and transmission. Um, all right, I'm going to go ahead and get started. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, Michael, this is our Sutra Study Sunday. Um, tonight is a continuation from last week. So the sutra that we were reading last week called the, the Maladana Sutra. Um, we started it last week. I'm going to do a quick recap for anybody that wasn't here or just because it's been a week. Um, and I'm kind of probably, I'll spend probably a few minutes uh, reminding us of everything that we covered and a few key points because, uh, as I said uh, last time, I really, really, really like this sutra and I think it's really beautiful. And for the most part, I think we're, we're ready to hear the second half and just listen to it. But again, there's just a few key ideas that I think if you are familiar with them, the, your listening or your hearing of it will be really expanded um, in that way. Um, and again, if you weren't here last week, here's what's going on. Um, we are in a mango grove in northeastern India uh, called the Jetavana, Anathapindika's park, a place where many sutras happen, many miracles were performed there by the Buddha. Um, and you may have already noticed that Srivasti, Anathapindika's park, and Jetta's grove, many sutras take place there, right? Um, uh, this sutra, like many others, thus have I heard, once the Buddha was in Anathapandika's park, and he's with uh, a bunch of arhats, a bunch of monks, also known as shravakas, also sometimes called theras or elders, thus the term theravada. Um, and he's also with uh, 12,000 great bodhisattvas, enlightenment beings, sort of Buddhas in training. Um, and like many Mahayana sutras that we read, there is a, a subtle discourse going on about the difference between shravakas and bodhisattvas, the difference between renunciants, ascetics, monks, and these sort of bodhisattvas, which are a, a unique class of being. They're kind of like monks, but they're different. So this sutra is about explicating sort of the difference between these two Buddhist characters, followers, voice hearers, and these sort of uh, bodhisattvas, literally beings of enlightenment, right? Um, and this sutra starts uh, in an interesting way with eight shravakas and eight bodhisattvas all getting up and heading into the great city of Shravasti to beg for food. That's what monks are in the business of doing. But this is a funny sutra, and you know, if you haven't been coming, you know, I've been teaching these Mahayana sutras um, in a certain way, which is that I've been te teaching them basically allegorically, uh, meaning I'm the type of Buddhist scholar or scholar of Buddhism in that sense that doesn't recognize these particular sutras, the Mahayana sutras. I don't really consider these historical documents of events that happened. I understand them as allegory. And so these eight shravakas are each known for being uh, Shariputra, the foremost in wisdom, uh, Kashyapya, the foremost in austerities, Shibuti, the foremost in debating. So they each represent their specialty. And in that way, in this sutra, they're representing something. 
So it's not about Shibuti asking the Buddha a question. It's about the foremost person of wisdom asking the enlightened one a question. And what does that mean when foremost wisdom asks enlightenment a question? Right? So it's kind of more, again, allegorical that these, that these figures represent things. And I mentioned uh, last week, too, that it, this gets a little more explicit with our bodhisattvas, who, except for Abhilokiteshvara and Manjushri, their names are provided just in these straight uh, bodhisattva, no deluded views, or like bodhisattva precious form. Uh, bodhisattva precious form would be probably uh, Ratna Lakshana or something like that. You can start doing back what's called back translating to Sanskrit to try to find what that bodhisattva's Sanskrit name was. But like, um, well, like many names, these names mean things. And so in this translation that I'm reading from, they chose just to translate these straight bodhisattva, no deluded views. Um, and so it's not hard to miss their allegorical nature because their names are explicitly what they represent. Um, and really quickly, just if you weren't here, there, these eight shravakas, the eight bodhisattvas, they all get together and head in. And one by one, starting with Shariputra, the wise, uh, for example, then the virtuous Shariputra said, when I reach the city of Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a dhyana that will cause all the sentient beings in the city to hear the Four Noble Truths. But then uh, Madhuryayana says, when I reach Shravasti to beg for food, I will enter a dhyana that will cause all the sentient beings in the city to be free from demons' influence. So they each go down through their specialties and say, ah, when I get to the city... I'm going to go into such a deep concentration, such a deep meditation, that it's going to like cause everybody to either understand the Four Noble Truths or be free from the influence of demons. Boom, boom, boom. So all eight of the Shravakas go through what they're going to kind of bring to the city of Shravasti. And then the Bodhisattvas, uh, starting with Dharma Prince Manjushri, who's the foremost in Pranya, or kind of transcendent wisdom, he doesn't say, none of the bodhisattvas say, when I reach Sarvasti to beg for food. Interestingly, they don't say that. They just say, Dharma Prince Manjushri just says, do, 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 I will cause all the doors, windows, walls, implements, trees, branches, leaves, flowers, fruits, clothes, and necklaces in the city of Sarvasti to make sounds teaching the doctrines of emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness, egolessness, nothingness, avoidance of all play words, and the absence of self-entity, anatman. So, yeah, so the bodhisattvas are clearly bringing a little bit more to the table in that sense. And so again, that's the juxtaposition that's going on here between these. And so last week I read through all of these. And then we got to the star of the show. The star of the show is this tiny little eight-year-old girl named Vimaladana. And this is sort of, um, I spent a lot of time on this last week, so I won't go over it again. But there's an interesting discourse in Buddhism going on about Vimala. And this term Vimala, wugo, in Chinese, it means without fault, flawless, or stainless. And so if you're familiar with the Vimalakirti Sutra, Kirti means fame, 
And that character, Vimalakirti, that bodhisattva, was famous for having flawless or stainless fame. Right? So he was famous without having the taint or the stains of ego, pride, yada, yada, all the things that come with, with fame. This eight-year-old girl is named Vimaladana, and dana is giving, like where actually where you get the English word donor and donation come from Sanskrit, dana, the root of it. So this idea of giving. And so this is an interesting discourse, Mahayana discourse, on giving. But what, what giving really is all about, right? Again, from a Mahayana perspective. And so this young girl, who is the daughter of King Prasenajit, another figure that pops into a lot of Buddha sutras. And so Vim, uh, little Vimaladana hears about the eight great Shravakas and the eight great Bodhisattvas coming to Shravasti. And so she's like, well, I'm going to go out. I want to meet them. And here begins what this sutra is all about. And this is sort of a sutra that I, I, might, I mentioned this last week. I had never read it before a few weeks ago. I've never heard of it. I've kind of glossed through it in terms of it being part of this larger collection of sutras. But uh, it's kind of skipped over and so after going through it I was like oh wow this sutra is great people got to know about this sutra and so the the beginning of the gist of this sutra is where Vimaladana this 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 young girl is like oh I want to go out and meet the Sharakas and the Bodhisattvas and she's stopped by Brahma this chief Brahmin a priest right so in India you have this caste system and the Brahmins are sort of at the top of this caste class system, pyramid system, right? And they are considered the purest, the wisest, the most directly connected to Brahma, God, thus their name, the Brahmins. And this Brahmin, the oldest of all 500 of them, the wisest, the most revered, whose name is Brahma, he comes and chastises little Vimaladana and says, no, 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 you don't want to go talk to those. You don't want to talk to them. They'll mess up our rites. We're about to do this puja. We're about to do this ritual. They're going to mess it all up. You can't go talk to those dudes. And that's where Vimaladana says, no, 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 you got it twisted. These are the most purest beings on the planet. It's, it's like you, everybody should go see these people. And so, again, without going through the whole wonderful back and forth dialogue between the two of them, Vimaladana is basically putting down the entire patriarchal caste system. The whole thing is just like, sorry, talk to the hand. I'm, I'm out. So that in itself sets the tone for this, where the, the men, a group of 500 revered men, come and tell this little girl what she can't do, what she shouldn't do. And she proceeds to tell them off, right? Then her father steps up. So now we have another male figure coming and saying, oh, why are you so sad? Come on, let me go buy you some ice cream. Let me go take care of you. And she begins to school him on like, aren't you saddened by all of your ice cream and your suffering and your clinging and this and this and that? So she proceeds to school both of them. And of course, an interesting part of this is that the Brahmins and King Brasanajit are like, how, how could, you're eight years old like, how could you be so excited about going to see the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas and the Shravakas when you've never even heard of or seen the Buddha the Bodhis and the Bodhisattvas and the Shravakas? 
And she tells this story about how when she was seven days old, she was like in the crib and there was a God that appeared above the crib that had never seen the Buddha. And so all these other gods got together and was like, what, you haven't seen the Buddha? And they recite a poem. The hair of the Buddha is reddish blue, clean, glossy, and curling to the right. His face, like a full moon, is the color of a hundred-petaled lotus flower. Da-da-da-da-da. And when these gods are telling this other god who had never seen the Buddha what the Buddha looks like, young Vimaladana is in the crib, seven years old, and hears it. And so she tells her father and the Brahmins, that's how I know about the Buddha, and that's why I want to go see him. Right? So that's her, her, her answer to these male authority figures. One thing I didn't mention last time that I, I, I sh- really should have, this poem... This is a very beautiful version of the poem, but this is a pretty classic poem in which the hair of the Buddha is reddish blue. That is a lakshana, or a quality of the Buddha. Um, That he has a white tuft of hair between his eyebrows. That's a lakshana of the Buddha. Uh, That he has a jaw like a lion. That he has eyes that rove like like the king of cattle. These are all the marks, or lakshana, of an enlightened being, a Buddha... Uh, it's an old, actually, Indian tradition. Buddhism adopted it, which is the idea that at a certain point of illumination or enlightenment, beings, Buddhas, begin to display these marks, these 32 marks. So these are the 32 lakshana that are listed in this poem. And it's basically like how, again, the Vimaladana had never seen the Buddha. So she has described, oh, looks like this, he looks like that. And so that she knows, oh, that's what a Buddha looks like. That's going to that's gonna be at play in this, this uh, conversation about how do you recognize a Buddha, right? Uh, so I just wanted to remind everybody about that little poem and that that's actually the 32 marks. Um, okay, then after that, so after little Vimaladana has schooled the Brahmins and schooled her father... She then goes to our first Shravaka. And then, this is the part that we kind of spent the most time on last, uh, last week, which is that Vimaladana proceeds to have a, a debate, a discourse, with each of these Shravakas. Right? And um, I just want to spend a little time on the, the core idea of this sutra, because again, it'll just make your hearing of the rest of it so much clearer. This whole sutra is a discourse about these two ideas. The Sanskrit terms are samskrita, samskrita dharma, and asamskrita, asamskrita dharma. Conditioned dharmas are conditioned things and unconditioned. Otherwise thought of as being dependent and in versus independent, relative versus, I don't even know if we have an English word for Irrelative, non-relative, we don't have one, right? But that idea of not relative, that's what's being discoursed here. And I just, you know, basically we talk about this every Sunday. So if you've been coming every Sunday, you know. But I'm going to do it one more time. And tonight, I'm going to take a whole new approach to this. So I just want you to know, every time I do this, these new approaches, all the old approaches still apply. All the old ways I did it are still good ways, but I'm going to do a new way, a different way, um, to describe what 
what's being spoken about here? This is the, the, the core of, certainly the core of Mahayana Buddhism. It might be the core of all of Buddhism, which is this, uh, this opposition, if you will, between these ideas. So let's, tonight I'm going to focus on the ideas of translating these terms as dependent and independent. All right? So uh, one of my favorite stand-up comedians has, his name is Reggie Watts. If you know Reggie Watts, he has this great bit he does about how he loves indie rock. He's like, oh, I love indie rock. He's like, anybody like indie rock, independent rock and roll? He's like, I love independent rock and roll. Because like, who wants their rock and roll dependent? You know? <laughs> De- dependent on what? He's like, I'm on my rock and roll. In- independent. He's like, or even better, how about interdependent rock and roll? He said, he was like, how about interdependent rock and roll? Anyways, so let's start there. This idea of dependent and being independent, like an independent band or being independent. Let's talk for a moment about this idea of dependency. This is what Buddhism's talking about, dependency, all right? And this is... I don't want to spend all night on this because then we'll lose our little Vimaladana. So think of that. It, dependent rock and roll versus independent rock and roll, right? What, what does that mean to be an independent artist or an independent group or an independent band or whatever, right? Think about what that means to be independent versus to be dependent, reliant upon something, right? If, I'm, if my band is dependent, I'm dependent on the record label for the advance, I'm dependent on the record label for the, for the bus, I'm dependent on the record label for the music venues, I'm dependent on the record label for, to produce my album, I'm dependent on all this stuff. But if I pulled back and I was independent on my own, well, oh, that would be really something, right? If I could sort of fund my own uh, tour, buy my own bus, press my own records. That would be independent, right? So think of that relationship of being dependent on something versus independent. Uh, we, we, we call legally, you know, we call children dependents, right? Because they are dependent upon their parents. They're dependent on their parents for shelter, food, clothing, right? But you could be emancipated, no? You could become independent from your parents before you're 18. I guess legally or whatever, we're whatever adults or whatever in different states, different times. But the idea is you could go to court and file for emancipation and become independent of your parents. And then your parents are like, great, I don't have to pay rent anymore. But think about that versus being dependent versus being independent. Buddhism's talking about this. It talks about uh, the, like, uh, there's old, early Theravada Buddhism talks about these four nutriments. The four nutriments are the four things that we're dependent upon. Food, um, uh, stimulation, sensual stimulation, mental activity, kind of ideas in that way. And just take that first one, food. Buddhism's like, yeah, we're dependent on food. We will die if we don't have air. I'm dependent on air. I'm dependent on food. I'm dependent on water, right? I'm dependent on all this stuff. So that's like literal dependency. Right? Like the child literally depends on its parents. The rock group literally is depending on the album or the record label or whatever, right? Hold that. Hold the literal dependence. Because now we're going to go into this more like subtle realm. So I often use I am a husband, right? So 
boom, I, I am a husband, right? But what, is, what does that mean to be something like that, right? Isn't my husbandness dependent on my wife? I don't get to just be a husband all by myself, right? You don't get to do that. You, you have a partner. And then th- what's interesting is that then the partner is also wed to you. So there's this interdependent relationship in there. And, and again, the idea is that I don't, just, I don't get to be like, mm, yeah, today I'm a husband today. Uh, like today I just decided that I'm married. It doesn't work like that. It actually requires the other person. And it's actually my wife, Holland, that makes me that. Right. And so there's an interesting thing in, in terms of, you know, not the physical ap- dependency on food and things, but this subtle dependency, that subtle dependency. It's the same dependency, actually. But it's a again, it's a more subtle form. All right, So let's speed it up here. What Buddhism is talking about is that basically everything you could possibly think of, imagine, see, experience, feel, anything and everything is dependent on something else. Try, please, try to tell me something that's independent, that's not dependent on something else. Because I guarantee you, if it's a color, that the nature of that color will be dependent on all these other colors. If it's the size of something, it's dependent on something else. If it's whatever it is, Actually, if you think about it, everything is dependent on something else to be what it is at the end of the day. Even if you, uh, you know, go back to, you know, not even, um, so husbandness, weddedness, you might be like, oh, okay, yeah, I see how you're dependent and how it's like, you know, in between the two of you. Okay, fine. But take uh, maleness. Maleness is dependent on the idea of femaleness. If there were no such thing in the universe as a female, there would be no male. There would just be, I suppose, being or whatever. But then even being would be dependent upon the notion of not being. Like my, my dog over here that isn't. Oh, and look, the dog that is. And that dog that is, the isness of that dog is very much dependent on the notion and the idea of the dog that isn't. As subtle as that might be, all of our ideas about what things are are mysteriously subtly bound up in ideas of the notness, if you will. All right? So in Buddhism, there is only one thing that is not conditioned, one thing that is independent, irrelative, all of that, one thing that is ah, samskrita, and that is nirvana. That's why they're talking about it. That's why, and, and even once you get into it, all of these sutras will say, and that word, nirvana, is just a provisional placeholder for a notion and an idea, because this is truly beyond language, beyond thought. So, for example, at the very end of this, just to segue us right into where we were, the very last of the group here is young Ananda, the Buddha's young cousin, He's actually not even an arhat yet. He's just still in a, a learning stage, but he's the foremost learner, right? And so he's the last of the shravakas to have the little discourse with Vimaladana. 
And just if you weren't here, just to give you a little flavor for how this went, then Vimaladana said to Ananda, virtuous Ananda, the world honored one says that you stand first among the learned. Is your knowledge that of the real meaning of things or that of words? If it is knowledge of the real meaning of things, consider that the real meaning of things is beyond speech. What is beyond speech cannot be known through auditory consciousness. What cannot be known through auditory consciousness cannot be expressed by speech. If your knowledge is that of words, then it is meaningless. For the world honor one says that one should rely on the ultimate meaning of a discourse, not on mere words. Therefore, virtuous Ananda, you are not learned, nor do you understand the ultimate meaning. Right. So that's just a little example of how these all went. Again, if you weren't here, right? And, you know, as I said last time, Ananda just gets slapped around, like, and all of them do, okay? And, and if you weren't here, each of them is, quote, rendered speechless. They're all, all eight of them are just like, oh, I got nothing to say. So the virtuous Ananda, too, was rendered speechless, then the Dharma Prince Manjushri, our chief bodhisattva, asks the virtuous Ananda, virtuous one, why do you not answer a lot of Vimaladana's question? And Ananda answers, the maiden asks about the learning, which has nothing to do with words. Therefore, it cannot be explained by words. She inquires about equality. Equality is not the mind because it has nothing to do with mental functions. This doctrine is beyond those in the stage of learning. How can, I have, how can I say anything about it in reply? It is in the domain of the other shore, reached by Tathagatas, the Dharma kings. And that's where we ended last time. So again, that was just to give everybody a taste if you weren't here, to remind us how it was going. Vimaladana schooling the Brahmins, schooling her father, schooling the elders. Again, all male. And now, the Bodhisattvas. So then Vimaladana said to the Dharma Prince Manjushri, the world honored one says that you stand first among the Bodhisattvas in profound knowledge. Is your understanding profound because you understand the profundity of the 12 links of dependent origination or because you understand the profundity of the ultimate truth? If it is because you understand the profundity of the 12 links of dependent origination, consider that no sentient being can fathom the profundity of the 12 links of dependent origination. Why? Because the 12 links of dependent origination neither come nor go and cannot be known by visual, auditory, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, or mental consciousness. The 12 links of dependent origination are not active phenomena. If your understanding is profound because you understand the profundity of the ultimate truth, consider that the profundity of the ultimate truth is no profundity, nor is there anyone to apprehend it. Manjushri said to Vimaladana, my understanding is said to be profound because I know the profundity of the beginning point of all things. Vimaladana said to Manjushri, the beginning point of all things is not a point. Therefore, your knowledge is not knowledge. 
Manjutri said to Vimaladana, it is because the inapprehensible can be realized by non-knowledge that I can speak of the beginning point of all things. Vimaladana said to Manjushri, the inapprehensible defies speech. It transcends the means of speech and nothing can be said about it. Manjushri said to Vimaladana, all that is said is said with arbitrary words. Vimaladana said to Manjushri, the enlightenment of Buddhas transcends words and speech, hence it is inexpressible. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, no deluded views. So, I want to pause right there just to make sure we know what just happened there, right? So Manjushri, who's considered the heaviest, he's the heaviest of bodhisattvas, by the way, um, Dharma Prince, it's a, it's a title reserved for an elite few. Um, notice he's not rendered speechless. Notice he goes toe-to-toe, and notice they kind of just, that's cool, that's cool. It... it, it, it it makes you realize that there's not just a, a rote uh, formula going on here. And then Manjushri was rendered speechless. No, no. It's something much more subtle going on than that. Mike, yeah. I'll do the Manjushri one again. I'll, I'll pretty much in total if you'd like. Yep. For sure. I just wanted to, all, just so everybody's on the same page. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Going back to the Ananda one real quick. When Ananda says, yeah, I can't say anything because the maiden asks about the learning which has nothing to do with words, therefore cannot be explained by words. She's over here. She's always over here. The Shravakas are always over in the conditioned land. And if you recall, all of their things were like, oh, I'm going to go to Shravasti and then everybody's going to be happy. And Vimaladana is like, this idea of you giving things to other people is absurd. Like, it's just reinforcing ego and all of that, right? So all of these got schooled in that. But bodhisattvas are supposed to be, like, pretty deep, and they're down with the asamskrita dharma. They're totally down with it. And so, again, Manjushri sort of represents that noble bodhisattva position. And, uh, yeah, just to really, again, you know, so can't do the 12-leg chain of causation, but you, if you've heard about it, that's what's being asked. So... She's like, so are you really smart because you understand the 12 links or you stand because you understand like the profound? And she's like, if you understand the 12 links, understand that there's nothing to be understood there. There's nothing. That's the point of the 12 link chain of causation. There's nothing there. But if your understanding is profound, then you should understand that there's nobody that attains profound understanding. Right? And then Manjushri, so I'm going to back up. Then Manjushri says to Vimaladana, My understanding is said to be profound because I know the profundity of the beginning point of all things. Vimaladana said to Manjushri, the beginning point of all things is not a point. Therefore, your knowledge is non-knowledge. And Manjushri said to Vimaladana, it is because the inapprehensible can be realized by non-knowledge that I can speak of the beginning point of all things. Vimaladana said to Manjushri, the inapprehensible defies speech. It transcends the means of speech and nothing can be said about it. Manjushri said to Vimaladana, all that is said is said with arbitrary words. Vimaladana said to Manjushri, the enlightenment of Buddhas transcends word and speech, hence it is inexpressible. So both of them are like that. And always remember that 
age-old adage, don't mistake the finger pointing at the moon for the moon. So don't do the thing where it's like, oh, this is dualistic. No, 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 no. This is talking about not dualistic, and this is talking about everything dualistic. And to put it in the dualistic trap is to fall into the dualistic trap, not to be wise. When they speak of non-knowledge, is that like nescience or is it... No, because, I mean, ultimately, again, without getting too deep into it, they're talking about a totally deluded, totally discriminatory type of knowledge that's based on this versus a more direct, vajra, immediate type of understanding that's not done by the brain. It's not done by the central processing unit. It's an enlightenment a bodhicitta that is founded on dharmic truths. It's not based on this stuff in that sense, right? Everybody good? No? The voicers and the parents, they know that she's talking about a sanskrita. They, yeah. They're not going there, but they know that she's, that's where she Yes, and, and some of them voiced that, yeah. where when the other monk would say, yo, well, why, didn't, why aren't you saying anything? They would say, oh, because she's talking about that. There's nothing to be said about that. So they're, so they're their smart. Their is sort of like, you don't, there's nothing to be said about it. Exactly. Versus the, the bodhisattvas who... Have something to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Brendan. Why is she talking to them again? Did she just go up to them and be like, hey, dude, poke at the bear? Like, I mean, is, or did she, is there some forum for like, I just forget how this whole thing started. Oh, yeah, she just rolls up to them. She him. just hauls up yeah, to yeah. them and be like, yeah. hey, you got a cool name, but I think you're Yeah, cool. and again, that's why, I, <laughs> exactly. And that's why I encourage you, you to read it allegorically and not look for the historical, like, really? She, he had a daughter? Why did she, yeah. No, it's yeah. about the discourse. They're not like holding cords. Okay, so, but it gets better. <laughs> then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, no deluded views, good man. You said, when I reach Shravasti, I will cause everything seen by all sentient beings in the city who deserve supreme enlightenment to become a Buddha image. And in this way, I will cause them to attain supreme enlightenment without fail. When you see the Tathagata, do you see him by his physical body or by his Dharma body? If you see him by his physical body, then you do not see the Buddha. For the world honor one says, those who seek me by form or sound hold the wrong view. They do not really see me. If you see the Tathagata by his Dharma body, you do not see him either, for the Dharma body is totally invisible. Why? The Dharma body is beyond the reach of vision and hearing and, is, and it is intangible. Therefore, it cannot be seen or heard. Bodhisattva, no deluded views, was rendered speechless. Bodhisattva, precious form, asked Bodhisattva, no deluded views, why do you not answer Vimaladana's question? Bodhisattva, no, delu- no deluded views, replied, Vimaladana asks about the Dharma apart from all entities. The Dharma, apart from all entities, is inexpressible. Therefore, I do not give an answer. Vimaladana said, I do not ask you about the Dharma apart from entities. The Dharma apart from all entities cannot be put into a question. When you have completed your learning, you will be able to answer my question without hindrance. (laughs) 
come on. Uh, by the way, um, um, uh, can you see the Tathagata, or can you see the Buddha by his physical body? If you see him by his physical body, then you do not see the Buddha. For the world honor one said in the Vajra Pranyaparamita Sutra, those who seek the Tathagata by form or sound hold the wrong view. It's a direct quote from the Vajra Sutra, and it's that idea that if you're looking for the Buddha based on, oh, look, there's the Buddha sitting down, male, 45, 50 years old, boom, that's what a Buddha is. Male, 50 years old, sitting down. And anything else that doesn't look like that is not a Buddha. That's sort of the old school way of thinking about it based on these 32 Lakshana with your great gurus and all of this and this idea of like, no, 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 an enlightened being looks like, they, got, they look like Jesus, right? They have long white hair and, and a long beard or something. The notion that an enlightened being, a Buddha or whatever, can be identified by a quality or a mark, a sign, a lakshana, Vimaladana says, no, 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 no. And then she says, and then if you're, if, you're, if you're smart then and you know not to judge the Buddha by the physical body, but by the Dharma body, by the body of truth. And she's like, but you can't do that either because the Dharma body is totally invisible to the eye and the ear, the nose, the tongue, and the body and the mind, right? And then, of course, this great, this great little interjection, right, where, where he's like, well, I can't answer her because she asked about that. And she's like, I didn't ask you about that, fool. It's great. Yeah. It's not meant Dharmakaya. Yes. Yes. Totally. And so if you know the idea of the Dharmakaya, the sort of Dharma body versus the Semboga and Nirmanakaya versus the, the physical Rupakaya, all that. Yeah. All right. Let's keep it going because we, we got to get there. Um, da, da, da. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva Precious Form, you said, when I reach Sarvasti, I will cause prodigious quantities of the seven treasures to appear in the houses of all the people in Sarvasti regardless of caste. Vimaladana asked, is your thought of giving treasures to people defiled with attachment or undefiled without attachment? If it is defiled with attachment, you're the same as an ordinary person. Why? Because ordinary people have attachments. And if there is no attachment, then there is no giving of any treasure. Bodhisattva pressure form was rendered speechless. Then Vimaladana said, that's just it, period. You're, you're done. Sorry, buddy. Who, who are you giving, who are you, who's giving what to whom is basically what she asked. And he's like, you're, you're, you're right, I never thought about it that way. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, exempt from all miserable planes of existence, you said when I reach Shavasti, I will cause sentient beings in the city who are destined to fall into the miserable planes of existence after their death to undergo slight sufferings in their present lives instead and to be quickly liberated. Now, the Tathagata says that karmas are inconceivable. Can inconceivable karmas be eliminated quickly? To say that they can be eliminated contradicts the Tathagata's words. If they cannot even be known, then how can you cause the people to suffer slight pain and have their karmas eliminated quickly? Bodhisattva, exempt from miserable realms, said the pure giving, by the power of my vow, I can cause the people to suffer less for their karmas and to have their karmas eliminated quickly. 
the Valadana said to, to exempt from miserable realms of existence, all dharmas are suchness by nature. They cannot be affected by the power of a vow. Bodhisattva exempt from miserable planes of existence too was rendered speechless. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, free from all hindrances, you said, I will cause the sentient beings in the city of Srivastava to completely rid themselves of the five hindrances. You think that after entering Dhyana, you can cause the sentient beings not to be enveloped by the five hindrances? When you are in that Dhyana, is it you or others who achieve freedom? If it is you who achieves freedom, you cannot impart that to others, as no such dharma is accessible to another. Then how can you remove the five hindrances of others when you enter that dhyana? If it is the others who achieve that freedom, then you cannot benefit them at all. Bodhisattva, free from all hindrances, said to Vimaladana, I can do it because I put kindness first. Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, free from all hindrances, all Buddhas practice kindness. Is there any Buddha who is not worried about the five hindrances of sentient beings? Bodhisattva, free from all hindrances, was rendered speechless. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, Avilo Kateshvara, Bodhisattva of compassion, you said, I will cause the imprisoned sentient beings in the city of Shravasti to be freed quickly. Those who are about to be killed, to be saved. And those who are frightened, to become fearless. Now, concerning this fear and fearlessness, do you cling to those ideas or not? If, if you do, then you're no different from an ordinary person who also clings to things. Therefore, this cannot be. If you do not cling to these ideas, then you cannot give the people fearlessness. If you cannot give them fearlessness, how can you remove fear from them? Bodhisattva Abhilokiteshwara was speechless. <laughs> Bodhisattva adorned with eloquence asked Bodhisattva Abhilokiteshwara, why don't you answer Vimaladana's question? Bodhisattva Abhilokiteshwara replied, this maiden does not ask about things that arise or cease. Therefore, no answer can be given. Vimaladana asked Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, can one ask about things that neither arise nor cease? Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara replied to Vimaladana, concerning what neither arises nor ceases, there is no word or speech. Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara, where there are no words, the wise coin arbitrary words without attachment. Just as the nature of dharma, just as the nature of all dharma is unobstructed, so the wise are not obstructed by words. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, adorned with eloquence, you said, I will cause ascension beings in the city of Shavasti who see me to obtain eloquence so that they can exchange questions and answers in wonderful verses. Concerning this eloquence you intend to give, does it arise from awareness or from passion? If it arises from awareness, then it is not quiescent, as all conditioned dharmas arise from awareness and watchfulness. If it arises from passion, then what you give is illusory. Bodhisattva adorned with eloquence said to Vimaladana, 
This was my this was my vow when I first brought forth bodhicitta. I wished that all those who saw me would obtain eloquence so that they could exchange questions and answers in marvelous verse. Vimaladana asked Bodhisattva adorned with eloquence, do you still have with you the vow you made when you first brought forth bodhicitta? If you do, you entertain the view of a self. If you do not, you cannot give eloquence to people. Therefore, your wish is useless. Hmm. Bodhisattva adorned with eloquence was rendered speechless. Then Vimaladana said to Bodhisattva, no deluded views. You said, I will cause ascension beings in Shravasti who see me to have no delusive views and to attain supreme enlightenment without fail. Does this enlightenment exist or not? If it exists, it's a conditioned enlightenment and you hold an extreme view. If it does not exist, it is illusory and you hold an extreme view with just the same. Bodhisattva no deluded deeds replied to Vimaladana, the proper name for enlightenment is wisdom. Vimaladana asked Bodhisattva no deluded deeds, does this wisdom arise or not? If it arises, it is not the product of proper, proper contemplation, but a conditioned awareness known to ordinary people. If it does not arise, for that reason it cannot exist. If it does not exist, it cannot be distinguished as supreme perfect enlightenment. There are no such distinctions as the bodhi of a bodhisattva, sorry, the, or the enlightenment of a bodhisattva, the enlightenment of a shiraka, the enlightenment of a solitary Buddha, the enlightenment of Tathagatas. Ordinary people discriminate about enlightenment, while the wise do not. Bodhisattva no deluded, deluded, no deluded views was rendered speechless. Then the virtuous Subhuti, going back to Subhuti, then the virtuous Subhuti said to the other virtuous Shravakas and all the great Bodhisattvas, virtuous ones, we had better go back. We need not go into Shravasti to beg for food today. Why? Because what Vimaladana says is the Dharma food of the wise. Today we can enjoy Dharma food and do without a meal. Vimaladana said to Shibuti, It is said that all Dharmas are devoid of superiority and inferiority. Among such Dharmas, for what do you go begging? Virtuous one, the doctrine of transcending play words is the practice of a monk. Do not delight in play words. The doctrine of transcending play words is the doctrine of non-reliance. Beyond the domain of those who rely on things, saints and sages practice it without regression. All right, I'll pause there for a moment. Any questions, ideas, comments? Yeah, Patrick. Can we go back to the very good line about the why is not relying arbitrary and Give me a little more to go on. Uh, it, was, it, was just, it was just one of the responses from the Bodhisattvas about one of the, one of, one of the Bodhisattvas was not rendered speeches right away. It was this, but just this idea of um, you need the words, right? The word, you, we, we, can't, oh, yeah. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we can't teach without communication. 
Yes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That was actually my favorite one. Uh, da, 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 da. The one about about the whys using... Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, I actually... That one really stood out to me, too. Where did, where did you go? The... I didn't mean to No, no, no. It's a great that, question. Oh, here it is. It's all words, right? Yeah. The sutra is all Oh, yeah. It was the Avilokiteshvara. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, so, Bodhisattva uh, Avilokiteshvara was rendered speechless, right? So, Avilokiteshvara is going to go free all sentient beings. Vimaladana is like, what beings? Avilokiteshvara <laughs> is rendered speechless. Bodhisattva, adorned with eloquence, asks Avilokiteshvara, why don't you answer? Avilokiteshvara says the maiden does not ask about things that arise or cease. Therefore, no answer can be given. Vimaladana asked Avilokiteshvara, can one ask about things that neither arise nor cease? I.e., can one ask about asamskrita dharma? Can one ask about the unconditioned? That's the question. Can one even ask about it? Right? Can one ask about things that neither arise nor cease? Avilokiteshvara replies, concerning what neither arises nor ceases, there is no word or speech. Vimaladana says Avilokiteshvara, where there are no words, the wise coin arbitrary words without attachment. Just as the nature of all dharmas is unobstructed, so the wise are not obstructed by words. And that's a, you're right, this is a, this is a, one of the things I didn't mention tonight is that the actual title of the sutra is the, like, the retort of the Maladana. It's actually about her debating these guys. It's what the sutra is called. It's like her debate. So it's all about language, the idea of play words that got mentioned. We talked about it last time. I kind of likened it to rhetoric and the way that you can kind of use rhetoric to control an argument, but that doesn't really mean you won. It just means you put it in a way that becomes impossible to answer without being caught in a subterfuge of some logic or something, right? So these play words are like very tricky. And that's an interesting one where it's saying, yeah, yeah, words, are, yeah, don't trust words, especially if you're going to get all cu- caught and hung up on them. But the wise, out of their enlightenment, coin their own words without attachment to them. And I think of that more as like, I mean, something akin to almost like freestyle rap or poetry or something in this idea of like where in the moment when we're all on the same page, I could coin a term. The, the blah, blah, let's talk about the blah, blah. And you all know what I'm talking about, right? The Lakshana-less monster, right? This... <laughs> You know, the blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, I can be using that word, and we're all on the same page. I can't then take that word out onto the streets and be going, everybody, blah, blah, blah is the way to go, because it, it will be meaningless out there. But the wise can coin arbitrary words and like use them without attachment as an upaya or as an expedient means. That's sort of what's going on. And I think that's a beautiful line. And in many ways, these shravakas represent the... Oh, Asamskrita Dharma? <laughs> like, that is the only answer. And in a way, yeah, they're, they're smart enough to know not to even get involved in it. Right. But what I've often said and what I'm kind of always saying is, is that, you know, this idea of duality or non-duality, this is like old hat to the Buddhists. The Buddhism is so far beyond ideas of non-duality that they've actually ventured into 
metaphysical discourses about that which should not even be able to be spoken about. But as long as you understand it's the finger pointing at the moon, the finger pointing at the unconditioned, and as long as you don't get hung up on the, on the finger like a dog, instead of looking at where it's pointing, you're looking at the thing, we can use words, but they're real tricky because they're very easy to get clung to, attached to, and go on from there. Okay, well, let's do this. So, by the way, all of this, last Sunday, all the way up to that line, that was just the intro. That was setting the stage for then the eight great shravakas, the eight great bodhisattvas, the 500 Brahmans, including the eldest Brahma, and King Prasanajit, and Vimaladana, and all the others went together to see the Buddha. When they arrived, they bowed down with their heads at the Buddha's feet, circumambulated him three times to the right, withdrew to one side, and sat down. Vimaladana made seven more circumambulations, bowed down with her head at the Buddha's feet once again, stood with her palms joined, and asked the Buddha in verse. I ask the peerless, world-honored one, the worthy one of infinite renown, the one who bestows the ambrosial joy. What is the Bodhisattva path? Seated under a Bodhi tree, how can one subdue demons, our torturers? May the most compassionate, world-honored one explain the practices compatible with enlightenment. How does one cultivate pure, wonderful, superior samadhis? How can one who practices the Dharma acquire miraculous powers? Now I entreat the world honor one to explain to us the right practice. How can one acquire excellent features and be endowed with wealth and wisdom? How can one learn to recall the past lives of self and others? The world honored one is omniscient and knows the past, present, and future. May the most wise world honored one explain the practices of a bodhisattva. Then the world honored one praised Vimaladana, saying, Excellent, excellent. In order to give peace and happiness and benefit to sentient beings, you extend pity to humans and gods, and you ask the Tathagata questions about the practices of great bodhisattvas. Listen attentively and think well about what I say, and I will explain the various answers to your questions. Vimaladana and the whole assembly said in unison, Yes, we will listen with great pleasure. The world-honored one then said, If a bodhisattva achieves four things, he can conquer demons. What are the four? Not to resent or envy other people's gain. Not to sow discord among people. To persuade as many sentient beings as possible to plant good, virtuous roots. And four, to be kind to all beings. To repeat this doctrine, the world honor one spoke in verse saying, Be free of resentment and envy, sow not discord among others. Teach many sentient beings to plant roots of virtue. Cultivate a heart of great kindness that extends to all in the ten directions. One who so practices can subdue demons. The Buddha continued, if a bodhisattva achieves these four things, he can acquire great samadhis. What are the four? Abhor samsara, constantly delight in solitude, strive perpetually for progress, and accomplish undertakings skillfully. 
to repeat this doctrine, the world honor one spoken verse, to dislike all forms of rebirth, to live alone like the single horned rhinoceros, to be vigorous as a good person should be, and to accomplish one's endeavors. The wise who can achieve these four superb things are close to enlightenment. One who seeks the supreme dharma and lives with a tranquil mind can acquire various samadhis and realize the supreme enlightenment, which is the domain of the Buddhas. The Buddha continued, Vimaladana, if a bodhisattva achieves these four things, he can acquire the power to perform miracles. What are the four? To feel lightness in body, to feel lightness in mind, to be attached to nothing, and to regard the four elements as empty space. Then the world honor one spoke in verse to repeat this doctrine. The wise are light in mind as well as light in body. They are detached from everything and regard the four elements as space. Having achieved these four things by their power to be anywhere at will, instantaneously, they can appear in billions of lands throughout space and make offerings to all Buddhas that reside there. The Buddha continued, Vimaladana, if a Bodhisattva achieves these four things, he will attain exquisite features. What for? To eradicate the filth of passions and avoid actions of anger, to enjoy cleaning of stupas and temples of Buddhas and offering them beautiful ornaments, to maintain a respectable deportment, keep the precepts at all times, and give greetings first. And not to mock Dharma teachers, but to regard them as world on ones. The world on one spoken verse to repeat this doctrine. Be not angry with others and renounce impure deeds. Cleanse the temples of the world honor ones and respectfully offer them precious decorations. Always observe the pure precepts and be the first to give greetings. Hinder not the Dharma teachers, but respect them as if they were Buddhas. If you perform these four good actions, you are called a valiant one and will have the most excellent features to the delight of all who see you. The Buddha continued, pure giving. Sorry, Vimaladana. If a bodhisattva achieves four things, he will acquire great wisdom. What are the four? Not to begrudge the Dharma to others, to explain to others how to eliminate faults so that they may be free of all misgivings and regrets, to persuade those who strive hard for progress not to stop their exertion, and to delight in practicing the Dharma of emptiness. Then, to repeat this doctrine, the world on one spoken verse, be not miserly with the true Dharma, Teach others, and thus remove their misgivings and regrets. Give constant guidance to sentient beings. Follow the practices of emptiness taught by the Buddhas. A wise person who enjoys performing these four deeds can gain wisdom and renown, understanding well the words of Buddhas. He will soon become an honored one among humans and gods. The Buddha continued, Vimaladana, if a bodhisattva achieves these four things, he will be able to recall his own past lives and the past lives of others. What are the four? To help forgetful people to recall what they have learned and recited. Always to speak in a pleasant voice, giving others joy. Always to give the Dharma without neglect and to enter dhyanas with great skill as the young boy Sudhana does so that one may be liberated from samsara and proceed toward nirvana. The world on unspoken verse, to repeat this doctrine, to cause others to remember what they have forgotten, to speak always in a pleasant voice, to be tireless in teaching the Dharma, and to cultivate dhyanas constantly. One who accomplishes these four things will be able to recall events, countless kalpas in the past, and soon apprehend 
the domain of all Buddhas. Then Vimaladana said to the Buddha, World honored one, I shall follow all the Bodhisattva practices just as you have taught. If I fail to follow even one of the practices that the world honored one has just taught, then I will be deceiving the Buddhas now, teaching the Dharma in all ten directions. Thereupon, the virtuous Madhulyayana said to Vimaladana, How dare you make a lion's roar in front of the Buddha? Do you not know that the practices of a bodhisattva are difficult to follow? No one can attain supreme enlightenment in a female form. Vimaladana said to the virtuous Madhulyayana, Now, I will make a sincere declaration in the presence of the Buddha. If I shall unfailingly become a Buddha, a Tathagata, a perfectly enlightened one, free of all clinging, a world-honored one, teacher of gods and humans, then, by virtue of my sincere declaration, may the billion-fold world universe quake in six ways without disturbing the sentient beings therein. If all my life I can follow the Bodhisattva's practices that the World Honor One has just taught, may celestial flowers shower from the sky, may hundreds of thousands of instruments give forth music spontaneously, and may I be changed from a girl into a boy of 16, all because of this sincere declaration. As soon as Vimaladana made this sincere declaration, the billion-fold world universe quaked in six different ways. Celestial flowers showered from the sky. Hundreds of thousands of celestial instruments gave forth music spontaneously. And Vimaladana changed from a girl into a boy of 16. Then the virtuous Madhuryana bared his right shoulder, knelt on his right knee, joined his palms together toward the Buddha and said, World honored one, now I pay homage to all the Buddha's bodhisattvas, whether they are novices or already at the site of enlightenment. How marvelous, world-honored one, that this maiden can have such awesome merit and miraculous powers to make great declarations and fulfill them right away. The Buddha said to Mudguyayana, So it is, so it is, just as you say. All bodhisattvas, whether they are novices or already at the site of enlightenment, are worshipped by gods and humans as the stupas and temples of the Buddha. Surpassing all Shravakas and solitary Buddhas, they are the unexcelled field of blessings for all humans and gods. After that, the world-honored ones smiled graciously, and as all Buddhas do when they smile, he emitted from his mouth Green, yellow, red, white, violet, and crystalline lights. The lights illuminated innumerable boundless Buddha lands, outshining the brilliance of the palaces of all gods and demons, and the lights of the suns and all moons. Then the lights returned and entered the top of the Buddha's head. Seeing this, virtuous Ananda rose from his seat, adjusted his robe, bared his right shoulder, knelt on his right knee, joined his palms toward the Buddha, and spoke in verse, saying, In a voice like that of a Naga, God or Brahma, like a lion's roar, the song of a Kalavinka bird, or a peal of thunder, you eradicate desire, hatred, and ignorance, giving joy to those who hear. May the world-honored one who has the ten powers explain the cause of his smile. 
The six quakes have disturbed not a soul, and the rain of celestial flowers brought joy to all who beheld it. The world-honored one vanquishes followers of deviant paths, just as a lion subdues jackals. May the world-honored one tell us the reason why he smiles. The brilliance of a trillion suns, moons, and pearls, the brilliance of gods, nagas, and brahma, all are outshone by the pure lights emanating from the mouth of Shakyamuni Buddha. The single curled hair between his eyebrows is as soft and impeccable as a celestial garment and shines like a jade white moon. The white hair glows with the light illuminating countless Buddha lands. May the Buddha explain the reason for this light. The world honor one's teeth are spotless, clean, even, well aligned, close and white as snow. From the Buddha's mouth emanating lights, green, yellow, red, white, violet and crystalline. Worlds may decay and suns and moons may fall. Heaven and earth may be filled, leaving no space to move. Fire may change into water and wire, water into fire, and the great oceans may dry up. But the Tathagata's words will remain forever true. If all sentient beings in the ten directions became solitary Buddhas at the same instant, each with millions of different questions accumulated through billions and billions of kalpas, and if they came together to the Tathagata to question him simultaneously, each in a different language, the Tathagata could resolve their innumerable doubts and answer all of their questions immediately in one voice with one word. The supreme honored one who has achieved wisdom arrived at the other shore, adorned himself with all-knowing wisdom and acquired the 32 auspicious marks and great awesome merit. May he explain why he smiles and whose Buddhahood he will prophesy now. This all gods and humans wish to hear. May the Tathagata explain to us why he smiles. Then the Buddha asked Ananda, Ananda, did you see Bodhisattva Vimaladana shake the billionfold world universe by her sincere declaration? Ananda replied to the Buddha, Yes, I did. The Buddha said, Since she resolved to attain Bodhi, enlightenment, Bodhisattva Vimaladana has performed deeds leading to supreme enlightenment for 80,000 incalculable kalpas. Bodhisattva Vimaladana had been treading the Bodhisattva path for 60 kalpas when the Dharma Prince Manjushri first resolved to become a Bodhisattva. Ananda, to match the merits and magnificent attributes of Bodhisattva Vimaladana's future Buddha land, it would take all the merits and magnificent attributes of all future Buddha lands of the 86,000 great bodhisattvas, including Manjushri's. Thereupon, the virtuous Madhulyayana said to Bodhisattva Vimaladana, Virtuous maiden, you resolved to attain, to attain supreme enlightenment so long ago. Why do you not change from a female into a male? Bodhisattva Vimaladana said to Madhulyayana, The world honor one says that you stand first in the achievement of miraculous powers. Why don't you change from a male into a female? <laughs> the virtuous Madhulyayana was rendered speechless. <laughs> Bodhisattva Vimaladana said to the virtuous Madhulyayana, 
one does not attain supreme enlightenment by means of a female body nor a male one. Why? Enlightenment does not come into being. Therefore, it is beyond attainment. Then Manjushri, prince of the Dharma, said to the Buddha, How extraordinary, world-honored one, that Bodhisattva Vimaladana can understand well the extremely profound Dharma and fulfill all her aspirations by the power of her vows. The Buddha told Manjushri, It is so, it is so, just as you say. Bodhisattva Vimaladana has cultivated the samadhi of emptiness under six billion Buddhas and the realization of the non-arising of all dharmas under eight billion Buddhas. She has asked three billion Buddhas about the profound dharma. She has offered clothing, food, and drink to eight billion Buddhas and questioned them about the samadhi of the seal of ready eloquence for different occasions. Furthermore, Manjushri, suppose a good man or a good woman for the sake of enlightenment, gives away precious treasures, enough to fill Buddha lands as numerous as the sands of the Ganges River. His or her merit are no match for those of one who accepts, practices, reads, recites, and circulates this sutra and explains it widely to others. Even writing down this sutra will result in the highest supreme merit, let alone practicing it as taught. How is this? Because a person who does so can accept and keep the bodhisattva's practices leading to enlightenment. Manjushri asked the Buddha, World Honor One, what should we call this sutra? How should we uphold it? The Buddha told Manjushri, this sutra should be called a discourse on ready eloquence for different occasions, or a discourse on the door of samati. You should uphold it thus. When the Buddha had spoken the sutra, eight trillion sentient beings, including gods and humans, resolve to pursue supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment without regression. Then Bodhisattva, adorned with eloquence, asked the Buddha, World Honored One, when will Bodhisattva Vimaladana attain supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment? The Buddha told Bodhisattva, adorned with eloquence, Bodhisattva, pure giving, after she makes offerings to more Buddhas for several kalpas, she will become a Buddha named Tathagata King of Pure Light, the Worthy One, the Perfectly Enlightened One, the One Perfect in Learning and Conduct, the Well-Gone One, the World-Knower, the Unexcelled One, the Great Tamer, Teacher of Gods and Humans, the Buddha, the World-Honored One. Her future world will be called Immeasurable Merits and Glories. In it, there will be no Shravakas and Solitary Buddhas. It will be more splendidly adorned than any celestial palace. Hearing in person the Tathagata's prophecy of her attainment of supreme and surpassable enlightenment, Bodhisattva Vimaladana, her mind pure, was overjoyed. She leaped into the sky to a height of eight billion palm trees, one above the other, and emitted a great light which illuminated hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of Buddha lands. Over the world, honored one, the light was transformed into 84,000 precious canopies embellished with various celestial gems. At that moment, by her immeasurable miraculous powers, Bodhisattva Vimaladana paid homage to countless Buddhas in the Ten Direction and offered them these canopies to them. After that, she returned to the Buddha and stood to one side. 
After hearing the prophecy of Buddhahood bestowed on Bodhisattva Vimaladana and seeing her miraculous feats, the 500 Brahmins, including the eldest Brahma, danced with joy and in unison they extolled the Buddha in verse saying, One who respects the Buddha will gain the greatest benefit in the world. One who resolves to attain supreme enlightenment will become a Buddha with the highest wisdom. We did evil in our past lives. Therefore, we have been born in families who hold wrong views. When we saw the Buddha and the Sangha, we uttered abusive words against him. When we saw the worthy sons of the Buddha, we said that they were inauspicious in their sight. Now we sincerely repent such verbal transgressions. If we had not seen the Tathagata, the most, world, the most honored one among gods and humans, we would have received the human form in vain and taken food for humans at no avail. We together, with Vimaladana, went out to offer sacrifices to the shrine. When she saw the Buddha's son, she praised them with veneration. Hearing her praise them so, we reproached her as a fool. Then we questioned her, Have you ever even seen the Buddha? She said in reply, Seven days after I was born, I heard the gods extol the Buddha's name. Her praises of the Tathagata did not differ from the truth. Thus, upon hearing them, we made the supreme decision to seek unexcelled enlightenment. Hearing the name of the Buddha, we were awakened to our past karma. At once we came to salute the Savior of the world and to seek this supreme dharma. After we paid homage to the Buddha, we listened to his unexcelled dharma. We see that the honored immortal among humans has forever parted from all suffering and that the dharma taught by the Buddha can truly deliver all worldlings from samsara. We will learn the dharma because it is unexcelled. We will listen to the practices of bodhisattvas because we wish to obtain the Buddha Dharma. We should also follow these practices so that we may realize the Buddha's path. You have discoursed on the essentials of the bodhisattva path to emancipation. We too will tread this path so that we may win the world's respect and admiration. Knowing their sincere desire, the Buddha smiled graciously. Thereupon Ananda said to the Buddha, please tell us why you smile. And the Buddha said to Ananda in verse, All these Brahmins, including Brahma, will successively, successively in the same kalpa attain supreme, unsurpassable enlightenment. In their past lives, they had made offerings to 500 Buddhas. Hereafter, due to their marvelous deeds, they will see billions and billions of Buddhas. For eight billion kalpas, no adversaries will befall them. In each of these kalpas, they will see billions and billions of Buddhas. Then they will become supreme honored ones among gods and humans. They will have the same name, called pure light, and an identical lifespan, eight billion years. Their lands, too, will all be the same, each with a sangha of eight billion beings. They will deliver countless beings, having benefited the world thus, they will enter final nirvana and realize ultimate quiescence. When the Buddha had spoken the sutra, Bodhisattva Mahasattva Vimaladana, Brahma, the 500 Brahmins, and the people in the assembly, the 500 Bodhisattvas, King Prasanajit, the great Shravakas, humans, non-humans, and the eight great divisions of all divinities, all rejoiced greatly in the Buddha's teachings. Swaha. Questions, answers?
it occurs to me from the lab, from other readings we've done here and other sutras and other lectures we've listened to the idea of a bodhisattva, of no self, no individuality, no expand, <coughs> no sanctioned being. And this comes up in her dialogue to them also, especially Fanjin Sri, you know, saying, well, if this is it, then you say you have a life. You say you're a sanctioned being, and thus it doesn't quite fit. So it was, it was nice to see the, the flow of that in the conversation on this sutra. You know, and, and that understanding. So, and I love that also that that nonetheless that she became a, a young man. She was always referred to as her. She, later, he refers con, continues with her in his in, in his explanation, and her retort was wonderful. And if so, then come on. Thank you. It's why it's my favorite. There is this thing in Buddhism, and unfortunately it even seeps into Mahayana Buddhism, which is this <clears throat> idea that it doesn't even matter lifetime after lifetime or lifetime. There's a sort of doctrine in, in early Buddhism, at least, that you have to be reborn as a man first, then you get to become a Buddha. But it's, it's off limits for women. That's like an old rule. In Mahayana Buddhism... They do, there's a few sutras where they do this thing where they're lauding this woman, but then she turns into a man. And it's like, okay, yeah, now, you, now come on, now you're in the boys' club and now we can go. So it's this kind of like, um, it's a, it just falls short for, for me personally of like, oh, no, dude, <laughs> you fell back. You fell back into the dualistic condition thing. Yes, this is one of the rare sutras where she turns into the, the boy, but then right back to the woman. And then it's like, why don't you turn into a man then? And the, and the, the discourse is unequivocal. It's, it's, it's clear what they're saying, that the lakshana of male or the lakshana of female, the qualities of male, the quality of female, distinguishing or discriminating beings as male and female is dualistic bad acts. That, that's it. And so her power is to be able to show that the arbitrary nature of gender and sex and all of that, that type of things, these, this is not what we're talking about. And so, yes, I love that she does the flip, but flips right back. They continue to call her her, and she actually stays a female all the way to Buddhahood. And it's actually really important because, again, there are these other sutras where they let the women get up to a certain point, but then it's like, all right, you got to learn the secret handshake and come into the boys' club, and then you get to... And this is the, one of the few that is, in my opinion, perfect. Totally perfect. They really don't do the thing where at the last minute they backtrack to duality. They stay continuously pointing towards the non-dualistic asamskrita. Yeah. Did, did this begin in the new tradition of, of women? No. I, no, the, I mean, no. The, 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 uh, I remember Googling out of the and the, the, the history through the gender identities from Hindu to the Chinese to the Japanese, and Kuan Yin was the final Chinese form of Avalokiteshvara? Kuan Yin is the Chinese, and then Kanon is the Japanese form, 
but I'm not quite sure what you're... The male femaleness? Yeah, didn't the male femaleness change in the transition through Chinese? Yeah, there, that's a long, very long story that I can't get into, but this Bodhisattva Avilokiteshvara starts off in India as a Bodhisattva with a little mustache, uh, big arm, you know, warrior armbands, male. Transitions somehow through Central Asia, and by the time Avilokiteshvara gets to China, she is a female appearing as a, you know, almost like a goddess type thing, flowing white robes, all of this. Um, and in more or less in East Asia, China, Korea, Japan, Avilokiteshvara is female. But actually what happened is, is that Avilokiteshvara has some little, like, brain bodhisattva children. Actually <laughs> what's said is that, that the Avilokiteshvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, upon... Uh, Upon achieving a stage of enlightenment where he, she received the, de- or, uh, developed the divine ear and could hear the sorrows of the whole world, could hear everybody sobbing, everybody crying, everybody wailing, everybody suffering. Avilokiteshvara was like, oh, and shed 33 tears. And each of those tears sprouted into a different colored lotus flower. And on those lotus flowers was a being a bodhisattva called Tara. And there's a white Tara and a green Tara and a red Tara. In fact, there's 33 different colored Taras that have different qualities to them. And Tara, T-A-R-A, is female. Like, it's kind of, like, there's kind of no argument that Tara is female. But because of the close association between Avilokiteshvara and her compassion children, Tara, Basically, the iconography, we don't have any in here, but the iconography of Avilokiteshvara and Tara became confused. There's a whole big, giant scholarly book on what I'm talking about, so I'm not making this up, nor did I think this. It's a big scholarly book about how this transition happened. And in East Asia, they're kind of like, Tara, who's that? Avilokiteshvara, right? And so there's kind of a thing that happens. And then it becomes a thing of like, was that was supposed to happen? Because I look at that as female. Like it gets tricky about, like, is this a cultural problem transition? Like, did they get it wrong, or did they help the Dharma out by changing it? Type of a thing. That was probably too long of an answer for all that. But otherwise, I look at Teshvara is usually all our only female. Like we've got Tara and Avi look at in, in uh, Mahayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism has a lot more female um, deities. By the way. Um, yeah, my question, uh, I guess it has to do kind of like with um, Buddhist ontology, absurdism, I'm reading, um, and like how that can be a heuristic tool for nirvana. Absolutely. Um, like, you know, the 84,000 canopies yeah. and the billions of kalpas and all this stuff, it's like my logic brain is like, <laughs> this is like obviously not real or something like that but I'm reading a book called Clearing the Path it's a it's a poly thing uh, um, a Tara from uh, an Englishman who went to Sri Lanka in the 60s or 50s and he wrote this book and it's kind of a criticism of the poly uh, poly stuff but mm-hmm. he talks a lot about like existentialism and the your continental philosophy and whatnot and your application of absurdism to Buddhism and how this can be um, useful. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting because he's 
doing it from a critical academic perspective. Mm -hmm. But um, I just wanted to bring that up because there's so, I mean, the more sutras that I hear about or read or whatever, the more I'm like, my, you know, bashing my brains like, what? You know, but I think that that's kind of like the point. The point. <laughs> yeah. So I just wanted to comment on that and yeah. see if you had any. Yeah, definitely. All of the language, the big numbers, especially this image of this light, these multicolored light coming up or coming out of a smile and then coming into his forehead. It's out there. And I want to, I mean, I think your initial feeling about it and especially comparing it to this thing you're reading, which sounds interesting is totally right, like in terms of the, the role of absurdism. And, you know, Buddhism is saying through all of this, you know, we have very rigid ways of understanding this world, like very rigid concepts and ideas about what's going on here. And that rigidity is actually causing us suffering because it's a, it's a drishti. A drishti is a view, and a certain view you know, would be like, oh yeah, the body, yeah, I, I understand caloric intake, I understand this, I have, to, I have to get this many calories a day or I'll die, da 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 like I, a very finite understanding of what's going on here based basically on like bad magazine articles, right? I don't really read medical journals, I don't really, you know, it's all hearsay that I've understood that this is it, but I have this really rigid sense that that's what's going on here and that the, my, the number of synapses could be counted is calculable and that again my caloric intake is calculable and every and you know I've got a Fitbit for my quantitative life and I'm going to know every step I take and so that rigid uh, like knowing every number and being real sure about those numbers Buddhism's saying that's really causing us a lot of suffering and it's not to say that we can't have understandings that maybe if you look at the body this way da 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 but with that big maybe in front of it and so for me, the language is about pushing that mind that's really rigid and just like you described. And it's like, yeah, it wants to push you out of the, that. So that there's that going on. I would also really encourage, especially if you are reading a lot of sutras like this, I've mentioned this about the, um, the 32 marks and this idea that like when people read the 32 marks and he's got like a protrudence coming out of his head and he supposedly has ankles like a deer and a chest like a lion and all of this. And there are people who have actually tried to draw this being. And it's like, I mean, he's got, supposedly he's got arms that are so long that when he stands upright, a Buddha, his fingers are below his knees. That's one of the, the qualities. So I don't know about you, but mine are at my thighs. So even if I was really relaxed, I could really get my shoulders down there. They're not getting anywhere near there. So imagine some super long-armed with webbed, like a frog, webbed fingers and webbed toes, uh, ankles like a deer, chest like a lion, all this stuff. And you're like, whoa, that was, that's, whoa, people are tripping, right? <laughs> unless, I've said this, unless you understand, oh, maybe a chest like a lion is prideful. Maybe webbed fingers and toes is a great swimmer. Maybe all of these things are like poetic references to qualities, but not, if you take them literally, you missed it. Similarly, light from a smile, uh, bringing great joy, 
and then coming back into the top of the head, there's something going on there that it's trying to talk about. And I think if you get, well, actually, I think if you take it literally, it's wonderful too, because it literally, then it's a visualization. And that's the way a lot of these Mahayana sutras operate, is that you're supposed to be sitting there going like, blue, white, pink, crystalline. You're supposed to be seeing it, seeing these, these light beams circle around the universe and then seeing them go back into the Buddha's head. It's a, it's a visualization. And what they, the idea of these sutras is that if you play along and visualize it, it rewrites your brain. It rewrites your mind. The actual thinking of what it's saying. These things are reprogramming devices. That's that's what they are in that way. Is so it akin to a Cullen in that way, where it's, it's, a, it's a almost an incomparable. I mean, Koan is the Zen tradition. Yeah. The Koan is the Zen way of doing the the mind bash by just giving you one thing to think about, or even just you know. Um, it's not even like, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? And it's supposed to be like, oh. In the Zen tradition, they'll just hit you with a stick or slap you or yell at you. In this tradition, they describe crazy lights. It's like psychedelic Buddhism. This is a little more psychedelic. Zen is a little more militant, a little more like, direct. But the point is exactly the same. Totally exactly the same. Let me sort of, because we're at time, I want to try to wrap this up. And there's one really, 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 really important thing that I didn't mention both the first night and this night. And it's this idea of the dana, her name. This idea of flawless or stainless giving, right? This whole uh, dialogue or discourse with our little Vimaladana, with these guys and these guys... So really quickly, just to rewind, these Shravakas as monks, as part of the Theravadan tradition, the renunciatory tradition. So, so it's an interesting sutra where, he's, where they're like, oh, I'm going to go into Shravasti. I'm going to enter such a meditation. It's going like, to cause everybody to see the truth, right? But what's kind of really going on is that these Shravakas again, except for Ananda, they're all arhats. And this word arhat, literally in Sanskrit means worthy one, but worthy, worthy of what? Literally, arhat means worthy of offerings. Like, that's what it means, that they, like, yeah, oh yeah, they're serious. They're, they're bald, <laughs> celibate, <laughs> homeless, they're the real deal. So they are wor- <laughs> they're worthy of offerings. That's the language of arhat means they're worthy and, and that's part of, I talked about Kashapya and his austerities. The idea is, is that if you forego sex, uh, limited diet, forego hair, forego clothes in a certain sense, forego family, if you perform those types of austerities, you're considered a little merit uh, generator, a little good karma ball with the idea that if, oh, if I give you some food or some clothing, I'm going to get good karma in return. That's the whole like, machine of early Buddhism. <laughs> They go to the great city of, city of Shavasta. They beg for food. You would give me the food. And I would give you the punya, the merit. That's the giving. That's the dana. The reason why they all get schooled the way they do, and to a certain degree even the bodhisattvas, is that... Well, actually, first of all, let me stop. The shravakas are, in a way, going to get the food. 
And, and Vimaladana sort of schools them on that. And like, this food you're going to get, what kind is it? So they're going to get something. But in the language of the sutra, I wanted you to notice that the bodhisattvas, they were going to go give people stuff. They actually weren't even begging for food. And that's actually a, a distinction between bodhisattvas and shravakas or, or monks in that way. Monks are receivers. And you, if you believe in or understand the karmic reciprocity going on, then there is a mutual exchange going on. But just in terms of this physical reality, the idea is, is that the monks beg and you do the dana. I get it. I'm a monk. I get the dana, but you give it. Bodhisattvas, you know, in the beginning of it, I said, you know, they're not monks, but they're not ordinary people either. And bodhisattvas are known for practicing the paramitas, the, the bodhisattva path that Vimaladana asked the Buddha about. And the paramitas, or the bodhisattva path, these are these six practices. And dana, or giving, is the number one thing. But what, what's going on here, though, is that the giving is not giving. Because of the whole discourse about, oh, I'm going to give you this book. And then I'll be the good person that gave, and you'll be the person that got... And that way, I'll be good, and you'll be better, because you were not as bad as you were before, because you, now you have the book, but you have the book because of me, right? You see, there's a real problem with giving, <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, if you ever were read Marcel Mauss's The Gift, there's a big problem with giving. There's a really interesting thing going on with giving in terms of... Um, indebtedness, it's with the book Marcel Mauss is an anthropologist, a French anthropologist or something that wrote a book called The Gift and he talks about the cultural nature of exchanges like that where basically if I give you a gift, you're basically in debt to me it's the sneaky weird thing about gifts so this is sort of discoursing about a type of giving that is beyond gift, giver and recipient what does it look like for a bodhisattva to really practice giving? You just heard it. You just heard it. That's why she is stainless giving, flawless giving. And that beautiful, beautiful line. Friends, we can go home now. We don't have to go beg for food because we're eating Dharma food today. That is a beautiful line. That idea that this girl, they're like, we don't even have to go to Shavasti. This little eight-year-old girl has just given us all the food we need in the form of dharma, in the form of these beautiful ideas. That's vimaladana. What would stained giving be? What would flawed giving be? That's the like, that's the flawed giving, right? I'll give you that, but now, and then I'll be pissed off till I get my, you know, in return or whatever it is. But if I really give without gift giver and recipient and what's in it for me and I'm better than, you know, than a person that didn't give, like you're, I'm any of that. It's all not right. But the actual selfless, unattached giving. And in many ways, it's impossible. And that's so much of the discourse that was going on. It's, it's impossible, right, to actually give anything. Sort of, kind of. <laughs>
And on that note, I'm going to call it a night. Thank you. Oh, I'm so happy we did it.